It was a day that uh, started really like any other. By the time the sun had set, the course of his life had been radically changed. And there are moments in each of our lives where a choice comes before us, where something happens to us that it's like a fork in the road, and we, the decision we make in that moment will affect the rest of our life. It can be when you meet someone who catches, catches your eye and makes your heart skip a little bit faster. It can be uh, when you see an advert for a job that uh, someone suggests you, this could really work for you. It could be when you move to a new city. It could be when you start a new course. It, uh, it could be just a completely unexpected thing, just suddenly breaks in and you think, I've got to make a choice here and the stakes are high. It's like that when God calls you. It's like that when God speaks and demands a response. I believe he wants to do that today. He is going to do that today. He has been doing that through our worship. Uh, You will have noticed that, I'm sure. I was praying this morning. I was reading uh, two uh, stories from the Bible, uh, neither of which we're going to look at today. But in both of them, God arrests the life of a person. There's a great king in the Old Testament called Nebuchadnezzar, a really evil guy. And God just breaks into his life and he's faced with a choice. In the New Testament, a guy called Saul, who hated Christians, who was going after them all over the place, suddenly Jesus interrupts his life, and everything has to change. He realises he's faced with a choice. Well, today we're going to look at a guy called Elisha, and the choice that he had to make. We're doing a series called The People of God and the Power of God. And Elisha is the guy who we're focusing in on that. But what we're looking at today is before all of that, how it began for him. I believe God wants to speak to you and call you and I want to show you how to respond to that. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, this is what happens. So he, someone called the prophet Elijah, he departed from there, he was down in the south, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. A short story with long-term consequences. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for speaking to us already this morning. Thank you so much for putting this on my heart, putting it uh, in the words that have been brought, the songs that we've sung, the stories I was just reading this morning, just randomly as it were, except that you wanted us to hear today your voice and your call. And I want to ask that you, Holy Spirit, would now be at work in me and in everyone listening to this, that we would respond to what you're saying. Amen. So this story starts with a weary traveller arriving in a valley of farmland. And he has travelled from uh, Mount Horeb down in the deep south 
up uh, to a, a place called Abel Mahola, which is in the north. It's about 156 miles. That's about the same as walking from Edinburgh to Inverness. Now, they didn't have the A9. I don't know if that would have made it faster or slower for them. But it was a long way to come. And so the traveler's tired and weary. But he gets to this valley, and he looks down in the valley, and he sees the man he has come for, the man he's been looking for. And down in the valley, the guy's just plowing his oxen. He has no idea what's about to happen to him. The traveler is Elijah, God's man in a godless land. Well, I say godless, actually the trouble is they have too many gods. They don't have the correct number of gods, which is one. They have been importing gods from their neighbours. The king and queen have been bringing idols in, particularly a god called Baal, and they had led the people into unfaithfulness to their own god by going after these other gods instead. Now Elijah had fought against this. He had successfully uh, proclaimed that a drought was going to come for three and a half years as a demonstration that this Baal God, who was a God of fertility and life and so rains and all that kind of stuff, that this God was no God and that the God of Israel was the true God. So Elijah said, by my word, there'll be no rain. And for three and a half years, there was no rain. And then Elijah arranged really a a battle, a face-off between uh, Baal and Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there were sacrifices made, and um, Elijah basically says, let's call down fire from heaven. I'm going to pray, and you guys pray. Let's see whose God sends the fire. And the God of Israel sent the fire. And then Elijah prayed and said, Lord, would you send the rain? And God sent the rain. And it's a spectacular event. And you think, what an amazing moment. God has won the victory. And then actually the king and queen, they're not really swayed by it. The people are impressed, but the king and queen say, no, we're not having this. And so Elijah just flees. He just goes and essentially has a breakdown. It's like, God, I've tried so hard, given all I can. It was phenomenally difficult and it hasn't worked. God gently restores him, speaks to him in silence rather than all the noise that he's been used to and says, I want you to go back north. I want you to find a man called Elisha and I want you to anoint him to be the prophet who succeeds you. So this is what Elijah comes into the valley with. Elisha, it's just another day at work for him. He's a wealthy man. 24 oxen is a lot of oxen. That's a lot to have going on. And suddenly he turns around and he sees the famous figure of Elijah striding across his field. And he probably thinks, wow, one of the great prophets of God. He's probably going to want maybe a meal uh, or, or lodging or direction or something like that. He's coming closer and closer doesn't seem to be saying anything and does seem to be staring at me quite a lot. No one really ever likes it when a prophet does that because you never know what's going to happen next. But Elijah just comes up to him, says nothing, except takes a cloak that he's wearing off his shoulders and puts it onto Elijah's shoulders and then keeps walking. Now we might think, what is that about? Well, Elisha and Elijah knew exactly what that was about. When you give someone your mantle, you are saying, follow me. And so a day that started just like any other for Elisha has suddenly become the turning point of his life. Will he leave everything that he's ever known? Will he leave the wealth and the security that he has for a journey that is guaranteed to be difficult? I mean, Elijah hasn't said anything, but Elisha knows enough of Elijah's story to know that this is not going to be an easy ride. And he's got a lot going on for him. Will he leave? 
Or will he politely make his excuses, or he just kind of shrugs the mantle off and just go on with his life as it was before? Or will he try and do a bit of both? Because he knows he ought to, but he doesn't really want to. Will he say to Elijah, thanks for the cloak. Anyone else you want to find who fits that better, I'll be praying for them. I may even send you some money to help with them. God bless you as you go, but do please go. What would you do? This is not a theoretical question. The circumstances are different, but the call is the same. God is calling you today. Some of you, for the first time, you, this may even be the first time you've ever come into a church, and immediately God is speaking to you. Others of you, you know what it is to be called by God. You remember being called by God. But something's drifted, and God is calling you back. Now, sometimes when, God, when Christians think about the call of God, they get very specific very quickly. And it's like, what's the particular individual thing that God wants me to do? And that's legitimate to think about that, but it's not what I want us to think about today. We're talking about the calling of God on all people. Jesus made it very plain in Matthew 22. Someone said to him, what is the great commandment? In other words, what do we have to do? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, God is calling you to put him at the centre of your life, to follow him and not your own desires or the ways of the world around you. He is calling you to acknowledge him as Lord, to really know him, not just have a passing acquaintance with him, for the decisions you make to be dominated by him and his ways, whatever that means. He's calling you to love those around him to care for them and to tell them the good news about him. He is asking you, no, he's not asking you, he is requesting, he is commanding that you commit yourself fully to his church, his delight on the earth. He is calling you to no longer consider things to be your agenda, but his agenda. To the things that you think that you own are not yours anymore, they are his. He's saying it's the end of my job my preferences, my interests, my spouse, my kids. He says, it's the end of those things. They are mine, God says, no longer yours. That's what it means when God says, all. When I was 15, I started going to a church like this. And I heard someone explain about Jesus, and I had some background of it, but it suddenly made sense, and I suddenly realised I had to give myself to God. And so I did. And I remember where I was, I remember the room I was in, I remember the next day writing in a notepad, nothing will ever be the same again, or something along those lines. But the weird thing was, even as I wrote it, and I knew it was true, it didn't connect with my heart. And the next five years proved that it didn't connect with my heart. Because although I did go to church and do some Christianish things, I did plenty of other things that weren't Christian at all. I did plenty of other things that showed that my life was mine and not Jesus's. And then when I was 20, I think I just realised how awful that had been going. How badly my life had turned out and how desperate I was without God. And he grabbed hold of me again, and probably with a sense of the memory of five years before, but all the more so just a, a sense of God's calling on my life, I knew I actually had to change everything if I was to live for him. Now it was a kind of awkward time to do that. I was between my second and third year at uni. 
So I spent two years living one way, and this happened over a summer, and then I came back in the third year, and my friends, bless them, had no idea what had happened. And it just didn't make any sense to them because the change was so different. That's what, it like. That's what it's like when God calls you and you respond. It is the decision of a moment, but it then works out across every day of your life. And because that's the case, I can speak to you who have never heard this before, and I can speak to you who have heard this a hundred times, because every day God is calling us to faithful obedience. And today is one of those days. It is a calling to a life of hardship and glory, of unpopularity and divine approval, of death and resurrection life. And if you're thinking, that is not the best sales pitch I've ever heard, I would humbly suggest it's better than Elijah's, who puts a cloak on another person and just walks and doesn't say a word. And when he does say a word, he says, go back again, what have I done to you? Which seems to suggest you have no idea what you're letting yourself in, in for. If you knew what I knew, you would probably run. There's no hype. There's no promise of prosperity. But Elisha has already made his decision. He is all in. How has he made such a life-changing decision so quickly? Because you think, I mean, Elisha, calm down. This, this is a big deal. Well, it is. But Elisha knows that Elijah is the prophet of the only true God. And he knows Israel's story, that they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land where they were to display to the world the goodness of their God. And Elisha thinks, if it's this God speaking, if it's the God who brings us out of slavery and into a promised land, if it's the God who made everything, if it's the God who gave me, Elisha says, everything I have, everything I look around me has come from God. If it's the God who speaks and things come into being, then whatever he says, I need to do. And there's no questions about what the task involves. Elisha doesn't say, could I just see the, you know, a contract of some sort? Let me just ask you about this and this. What, what, let, tell me about this, your organisation. None of that happens. Elisha knows God has spoken and that's it. That's all he needs to know. If God has spoken, if God has said, now follow me, Elisha must. And if he can make that decision with that amount of data, that memory of rescue from Egypt and the things God had done, how much more can Christians respond to God straight away? Because Israel had the memory of rescue from Egypt, but Christianity proclaims rescue from sin and death. Christianity says we know who God is. He has shown himself to us. He has come to us as Jesus. And we have trustworthy accounts of who he was and what he did and what he said. They've been preserved for us in the Bible. We can see God. We can know God. We can know what he is like. We can experience the forgiveness of sins because Jesus died for us. We can experience the presence of God with us right now because Jesus rose to life and then sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. We can look forward to an eternity of joy with him and his people because he has gone to the Father where he promises to return to make all things new. This is the information we have. This is who God is. 
This is who it is who calls you. The next thing we see in the story is smoke rising from the ashes of Elisha's former life. God calls us to leave everything else in the dust and follow him. For Elisha, everything else was a lot. You might think 15-year-old, 20-year-old guy, I mean, wouldn't have had, you know, change this way, lose some friends or whatever. It's, I mean, come on, it's not that much. I mean, Elisha's got a lot. 24 oxen, that is a lot of oxen. He has a successful business. He lived in a lovely place. Abel Mahola means field of dancing. That's what you call a nice place. <laughs> it isn't field of wishing you were somewhere else. It isn't stony ground of horribleness. He lives into a field of dancing. And he's going to walk away from it. He's got parents who he loves, who he would have a responsibility for in that culture. Children were not to abandon their parents. And he goes into them and says farewell. Prophets could get married, but Elijah hadn't. And Elisha probably thinks, if I'm going to follow him, I'm probably choosing singleness. By siding with Elijah, he was effectively proclaiming himself to be an enemy of the government. And like I said, successful businessman, wealth and status. And he leaves it all. He burns it. It's like a bonfire of the certainties. Everything he knew, except God, he was leaving behind. And so the question that many of us are probably asking at this moment is, is this a little over the top? Is this a bit much? If you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're like, is that the deal? <laughs> you want me to leave everything and start something I know nothing about? If you are a Christian, maybe you're thinking, is that the deal? And does my life look like that? Did he really have to go that far? Or is he just a bit of a one-off? Elijah, Elisha, what are they like? They're the wild guys. And here's the rest of us. Well, I want to give you three reasons why I think this is the call of God for everyone. Why the call of God must be all or nothing. The first one is it just makes sense. I don't know if you've been watching any of the Paralympics the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have. It's been amazing. And um, we've also loved the program. Uh, BBC always I mean, loves the Olympics, very serious about the Olympics. And Channel 4 has gone with a comedy show in primetime, The Last Leg. And uh, guys who have disabilities and loads of the power athletes come on and um, they, they love them, they celebrate them, they're very funny, they're occasionally a bit rude. Um, but one of the things they do with the athletes who have finished, and usually with a gold medal around their neck at that time, they say to them, so, what's the food you haven't been able to eat? What is the thing you've been waiting to eat? And, you know, no one says salad. Everyone says, you know, it's like burger. Ugh. I haven't had a burger for months, or chocolate cake. It's just been no chocolate cake for me for all this time. And so obviously they then bring the food out, and the athlete's like, yes, I get to eat this right now. Now it's fine in normal life, as part of a balanced diet, <laughs> to have a burger now and then, 
to enjoy chocolate cake once in a while. It's fine in normal life, but not if you're an elite athlete. Those athletes know what so many Christians either don't realize or prefer to forget. The Apostle Paul saw it. He saw the commitments of the athletes in his day and he commended it to us. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, the victory crown they were given. But we, Paul says, an imperishable. And so this is a, a smaller to greater argument. Paul says, if they will do that for that, if they will give up, what they eat, if they will give up comfort, if they will strain and, and give their whole lives to win a medal, how much more, Paul says, should God's people give up everything to gain eternity with him? Because what we've been called to requires nothing less than total commitment. It's really hard. And it deserves nothing less given the glory promised. So it just makes sense. That's the first reason why we must all be all in. Secondly, it's God's command. Elijah and Elisha lived at a time when Israel was faced with an either-or choice. Either they worshipped the, God the gods of their neighbours, or they worshipped Yahweh alone. It was a choice most people preferred not to make. Because... They felt quite small as a nation and they were aware of all the other big nations all around them and all the other big nations all around them worshipped these other gods. And basically say to them, Israel, what are you doing? Why are you not worshipping the gods we're worshipping? And Israel goes, um, I don't know, I, I am really. Come on, let's come in and, and all this kind of stuff. And they, they, they just almost, they just make an accommodation. And when you read the Old Testament, this can sometimes be quite confusing. Because you think, well, if, you, if you're not a believer in Israel's God, you'll be totally a believer in the other gods. And, and that isn't always what happens. And you see kings kind of one moment talking to the God of Israel and then worshipping these other gods. And you're thinking, how are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. Surely that can't be how to live. And yet, of course, we do that all the time. The story hasn't changed that much at all. A Christian who keeps their faith to themselves who doesn't let it change anything apart from what they do on a Sunday morning and the occasional generally accepted good deed, is just about okay with everyone else. Or, to put it the other way around, everyone else is just about okay with them. But anyone who believes that Jesus alone can define what is right and what is wrong, anyone who believes that what God has said matters more than what everyone else thinks, is asking for trouble right now. I don't mean this in a scaremongering kind of way. It's just what it's like. And if you've ever lived this out, you'll know it. Keep it to yourself. Okay, although we're still not entirely happy about that. Start to tell me about it. Start to think that it should shape everything else. You are in trouble. And so what is easier? Well, I want to keep it because I know it's God and it's true, but I don't want to upset them. Christians are faced with the same either or that Elijah and Elisha faced. Either we settle down and agree with everyone else, or we follow Jesus and get into trouble. Now, there are some people who relish that. There are some people who are like, bring it on. I love fighting with people. I love having arguments. 
most of us like getting on with people, don't we? We like conversations to end with a kind of a bit of a laugh and a great see you later, rather than a horrified silence. We like feeling on the inside of what's happening, not what's on the outside. But in a world that is opposed to God, however wise and loving we are and we should be, there's going to come a point where opposition happens. Because it's two completely different ways of understanding everything. Elijah knew that compromise was contrary to the heart of God. I talked at the start about this big confrontation that happens on Mount Carmel in uh, 1 Kings 18. And uh, Elijah says to the people, they are gathered there, and he says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh's God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. But he says, you can't do both. It's got to be one or the other. And he was echoing a choice that Moses gave the people of Israel centuries before. Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The God of the Bible is not accommodating. He will not share his glory with any other. Because only he created all things. And only he sustains all things. And only he will bring all things to to an end. And only he rescues. If you think this sounds a little Old Testament, Jesus says exactly the same thing. I am the way and the truth. And the life, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Either or. Elijah had lived with that either or. He had chosen the or, and it had hurt. There had been great personal cost. And now his potential successor had to consider things in the same way. The comfort of today, or the call of God. Friendship with the world or faithfulness to God. Elijah looked at his former life, fine and respectable as it was, and made his choice. Burn it all. It makes sense that the call has to be all for all of us. It's what God has commanded, and thirdly, it is what God has done. Because Jesus faced an either or. Either he leave us to ourselves, he leave humanity in its terrible, messed up state where we are fractured from each other, even from ourselves, where uh, we are hopeless and miserable and alienated from God. Either he leave us in that way or he come to rescue us from that. He come and give us himself There was no other way that we could be saved. And so he kisses his father goodbye and leaves. And he abandons the riches of heaven and comes to earth. And when a sacrifice needs to be made, 
It's not the oxen. It's him. It's common sense. It's what God commanded and it's what God did. The call of God should make us leave everything else in the dust. And so Jesus says to every one of us here today, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, murdered by the Nazis because of his commitment to Jesus, made it plain, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This chapter of Elisha's story, the first chapter really of his whole life, ends with Elijah and Elisha leaving the field of dancing, perhaps with the smoke of the bonfire still rising into the evening sky. And he turns away from everything he's known and faces an unknown horizon. The drama of God's call is followed by the discipline of apprenticeship. We're told that what Elisha does is he went after Elijah and assisted him. Elsewhere it says that he washed his hands. He was his servant and he spends the next 10 years doing that and we know nothing of his life in that period except that when the time came to succeed Elijah, he was as ready as he could be. 10 years. To be honest, that is on the short side for God's preparation. When you read in scripture, you see some people waiting 40 See, if you thought responding wholeheartedly to the call was hard enough, what follows can be even harder. It's when the dreams that God gave you seem like they might die. It's when personal ambition can be ground down into humble service. It's when you learn perseverance and reliance on God alone because you're left with nothing else. It is absolutely essential if you are to fulfill the call of God on your life that not only do you say yes in the moment, but you say yes day after day after day when there is nothing to commend the yes to you except the promise of God. And some of you understand that because you're living in that. You remember it seems a long time ago when people talking about the call of God was an exciting moment for you made your heart skip faster, made you wonder what God might do with you, made you think, yes, I'm going to give myself to him. Maybe you even ran to the front of a meeting. But faithfulness since then has just got harder and harder and harder. And it's made you want to quit. And maybe even for some of you, you have quit. I mean, you still, you still come to church, but by and large, you're relationship with God is practically non-existent now and there's some resentment there and your priorities are, are just like everyone else's really who's around you who isn't a Christian you can't really tell the difference except for what you do on a Sunday morning and I want to implore you again today to hear the call of God to, to leave everything and follow him. I know for many of you, it will feel like turning things around is just too much trouble. 
It is just too hard. You're like, I am in this pattern now. This is what my life is like now. You imagine the eyebrows that would be raised if I now started following Jesus again. Can you, do you understand how difficult my work would be, my life would be, my family would be? Yes, I understand that. It's hard. That's what Jesus said it would be. But I don't think hardship is necessarily what's holding you back, although it may feel like that, that tug you're like, I could do this for Jesus, but oh, it'd be easier to do that. But there's not just that. There's a vulnerability in believing God's call. It makes you vulnerable to ridicule, perhaps, but also to hope. And to think again that this might be true. Think again this might be what God is really saying. And then, for it to go hard and silent for years... God has called you to follow him. He has called you. This isn't, this is why specifics are so unhelpful when we think about God's calling. It's like, was it this little thing? Was it this little thing? Am I supposed to preach? Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do that? God's saying, I've called you to follow me. It really is as simple as that. And because it's as simple as that, it's as hard as that. Because it means right now. It means every decision you make. Others of you consider that a warning for what you are hearing for the first time or hearing in a new place, in the first day in a new city maybe or life's just changing and it's, things are going to be new but the call of God on you is the same. Start as you mean to go on. Make a bonfire of everything that would hold you back. Set the tone with new acquaintances and friends right from the start. This is who I am. This is who I follow. And that means sometimes I'm going to go in a different direction to you and it'll be awkward for us, but it's all right. But this is how I have to live. I'm compelled to live that way. Set tone. And then follow it up every day with habits of daily devotion. When I was 15, it felt like a dramatic moment. When I was 20, that entire summer felt like a dramatic moment. I'm 36 now. I have not had 16 years of dramatic moments since. There have been some, but they have not been what kept me going. What's kept me going is that day after day, I get before God. Day after day, I open his word and I say, Lord, I need to hear from you again today. You describe your word as bread and you say, I need daily bread. I need this bread. Lord, I don't know what to think. I need your word. I don't know what to do. I need your guidance. I'm coming to you again and again. And there's something in the habit of that, in the pattern of that, that puts you before God and changes your heart. I am hoping that God is speaking to you right now. I am, I've been praying for this, that you would in this moment want to respond to him. But I know that ultimately that won't really matter if tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after and on and on and on, decades maybe, if you just hope to keep going in the power of that moment, it, it will not do it. By yourself with God is where the battles are won. By yourself with God is where you get the, what you need to keep going. I want to commend you making a pattern of that. We're blessed that I've got a room that I can go into, and I know I'm going into that room even as an act of faith. 
And habits can help us in that way. And you may be more of a spontaneous person, and that's fine. But there's something about saying, I am going to God again. That's what tells you and tells him that there's nowhere else for you to go. God is calling you today. How will you respond? Will you leave everything in the dust, a smouldering wreck behind you, to follow him? Will you trust him and follow him for the umpteenth time, maybe? Or perhaps for the first time today? If you do, you will have no regrets on the day you see him face to face, which you will. Elisha saw Elijah and knew he had to follow. You are unlikely to be having a vision of Jesus right now, but he is speaking to you and saying, there will come a day where you will see me face to face. I want that to be a day of celebration for you, a day of rejoicing. We're going to sing a song. So, band, if you would come up, that would be great. And I'm, I'm wanting to give you the opportunity to respond. And we don't do this every time, but there's times when, when you talk about things like the call of God and he is bringing you to a response. It really helps to respond, and it helps to respond physically. And so in a moment, we're all going to stand up and then going to invite as many of you who want to, who say, God, either for the first time or just again in a new way, I want to respond to your call. I'm going to invite you just to walk to the front. And even if you're upstairs and you might have to push people out of the row, that's fine because that's not going to be the hardest thing you do when you have to follow Jesus. But there's something about saying to God, here I am, that is powerful. So if you're able to stand, please stand. And if you want to respond to the call of God, if you want to say, I'm all in, I'm fed up with living in compromise or I'm understanding that this is now what my life has to be like. I want to encourage you right now, come to the front, please. God's calling you. Thank you. God is speaking. If you're on ministry team, maybe you guys could come forward as well. We'd love to pray for some of these people. You can still come, but wherever you are, I want to ask you a question. What do you need to burn? What do you need to burn? What needs to stop? Because the voice of God is saying to you today, follow me. What does that first step look like for you? What's it going to look like this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning? What's it going to look like when you're back at work, when you're at your first tutorial, when you're walking to the school gate? And do you need to start getting alone with him day after day after day? Lord, I want to pray for every person here who's responding to your call, who's saying, I must give my all. Lord, give, give.
Give us grace. Please sustain us. It's going to be really hard. But there's nothing better that we can do. Lord, for those of us who were called years ago and have let it die, who have let it settle, who have let it just become respectable, and so many things that are contrary to you. Lord, we are sorry. We are so sorry. We're just the same as everyone else, but this kind of veneer of Christianity, it's not enough. It's not enough. God, change us. Cleanse us from within. Fill us with your spirit and make us responsive to you. Begin that change in us now and work it through in us day after day. We're sorry where we've gone, where you didn't tell us to go, where we've kept what you told us to burn. Help us now, Lord Jesus, to follow you. We're going to sing. If you're on ministry team, you can just, I just want to encourage you just to go and pray for different people. It doesn't have to be long. You can just bless them or you may want to ask them what's going on. There's still time because we're going to sing, so if you want to come forward, you can. But wherever you are and wherever you're at, let's praise God and commit our lives to him.